Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, fresh off of Celtics Warriors, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. Golden State's dynasty is dead. There's a new king in town, and I'm sure you're elated by what happened uh, (laughs) in the TD Garden on Thursday night. Man, I am so pissed off, honestly. And it's no no shots at the Celtics, but I have been tormented by Celtics excellence for the past month or so. And we've been getting emails from Celtics fans talking trash. Celtics fans have really been feeling themselves on Twitter. And they are technically correct about how awesome their team is, but it's still upsetting. And all I really wanted tonight was for the Warriors to come in and beat this team by 30. And of course, the one time I'm actually rooting for a 30-point Warriors win, they come in and lay an egg. Uh, Par for the course with this team, disappointing me for the last 18 months. Um, But yeah, man, look, my frustration aside, it was a great game. Yeah, I don't know if I'd call it a great game. I I do think we should play a little factor fiction with the takeaways from this game because I think from Boston's perspective... You know, as uh, uh, reluctant as we are to give them credit, I thought there was a few things we should definitely give them credit for. Yeah. Uh, But I also think big picture, uh, I mean, Golden State didn't really lay an egg. They were up 17. They had a terrible whistle, especially late. Uh, Curry played probably his worst game of the season, if not his worst game of the last 12 months. Right. Kerr did typical Kerr stuff by playing, you know, 12 guys and loading up heavy bench <laughs> units yeah. in the second half, allowing Omri- a gigantic run. Yeah. So is Omri Caspi going to get fourth quarter minutes in the playoffs? Like what's how how far will Kerr take this? Uh, I your guess is as good as mine. But in terms of like the facts, the big takeaways from Boston's side, I would say. Jalen Brown, if he hadn't already sort of had his coming out moment, maybe he has. I thought Mm -hmm. that this game probably qualifies for him. To me, he's a guy who I expect to be a big impact maker in the upcoming playoffs, period. You know, I think he he has raised his bar to that level. Um, You know, defensively, the activity deflections, he uses his body so well to make people uncomfortable and not foul. Uh, you know, maybe lengthwise, he's not really there in terms of contesting some shots and, and who is really against Golden State's elite wings. Uh, but he really stood out defensively. And then offensively, uh, he more than, you know, did his share. And he really covered up, I thought, from kind of a spotty night for Kyrie Irving uh, and then some other kind of quiet nights for other guys in Boston's rotation. So to me, I think the biggest takeaway of the whole thing from that game is like, all right, you know, Jalen Brown, no more asterisks, no more like, hey, two years <laughs> from now, you know, you're here, you know, you were in your stripe. Yeah. Uh, so I wrote about the Celtics earlier this week, and it was partially an attempt to jinx the Celtics, but I wrote about how what we've seen the last month is sort of a case study in how good the Celtics are from top to bottom. And Jalen is a great example because he was not at all a popular pick at three. Um, I sort of had a feeling they might go that direction just because he has the most or he had the most upside. Um, But a big reason I thought they might go that direction is because Jalen's game is not perfect and he's not super consistent. Um, But the thing you can say about him is that he's exactly the type of player that you can have on the court 
in a series with the Warriors. And if you look up and down this Celtics team, that's pretty clearly how they're building the team. Like it's not an accident that everyone is six seven or six eight and really athletic. Everyone beyond like guys like Kyrie. And uh so it's not it's not a coincidence that he was out there and able to sort of hang with everybody. Um I don't think he's as good as he looked tonight, but credit to him. And the thing with Kyrie, you mentioned it was a rough night for him, and obviously it was. I mean I think he was four four or fifteen or four or sixteen, whatever. But I got to say, like, I have a lot of sarcastic things to say about the Celtics, but man, Kyrie really does get wherever he wants when it matters. And he did it over and over again in the fourth quarter and was basically their only offense down the stretch. And uh, it allowed them to sort of hang around and then steal it at the end. Yeah, fact, confirmed fact from something you said earlier this week. Clay Thompson has a tough time with Kyrie off the dribble. You know, I mean, there was lots of situations where laterally, you know, he turns his head or, or on an imbalance play, or Kyrie just starts to really go hard off the dribble, and Clay can't stay with them. Uh, they're going to kind of have to clean that up. I think we should say fact. Boston's defense played very well, especially digging out of a, a big hole. It's always hard to. You know, convince yourself you're going to be able to come back on a team like Golden State. A lot of teams would have probably given up on that game, you know, right around halftime. Yeah. You, you never really expected Boston to do that because they're very disciplined. I mean, that is really, to me, their biggest strength is they stick to the script. Uh, but I think it's fiction to say they held Golden State to 88. I think they well, did a nice job. I think that they are one of the league's best and, and most active defensive teams. But Golden State, did build a 17-point lead. They did get lots of quality looks. They did not shoot the ball well. Steph was just out of sorts. I'm not going to give them credit for holding Steph down, Not at least not full credit. Uh, and then, again, when they went dry, their lineups were just a train wreck. So you can't give Boston the credit for those types of things. Not, yeah. not in my eyes. First of all, I, I just I feel disgusting giving the Celtics this much credit. But more credit to the Celtics front office if that bench is the is what really turned the game in that third quarter because the starters were getting run off the floor and then it was guys like Terry Rozier and like I think Aaron Baines was out there uh Marcus Morris like they were able to sort of turn the tide and get themselves back in the game which is really impressive the Steph question is pretty interesting though because he played like shit <laughs> so there's no question about that but uh it's not, I mean, he has struggled a couple of different times against the Celtics. And I think there's something to the idea that Brad oh, Stevens no. knows how to make his life difficult. No, no, no. Don't do this. Really? No, come on, man. Really? You're really going to make that case? No, I, I mean, look, Steph was getting trapped almost every time I saw him tonight. And he, like... The Celtics are good at bothering him. I'm not going to give them any more credit than that. And I do think it was probably 50% just a bad Steph night. And again, with the Warriors, Steph is the bellwether. When Steph plays really well, they are unbeatable. When Steph is sort of human, they become kind of a mortal team altogether. And uh, and both Steph and Clay were just off all night. So... They, yeah, to me, Steph's throwing the ball all over the court. You know, he's kind of bumbling things. He's just out of sync. I mean, yes, like Boston's defense, like we've said, is solid, but they're not like 
causing Steph to have a meltdown. You know, I think a lot of that was just self-inflicted. Uh, and then I also think, you know, past just Steph, I mean, shot selection from Golden State, again, you know, Boston's not going to give you lots of easy stuff, especially late, but some of the shots that they were taking, whether it was Katie's quick pull up two, whether it was Draymond kind of rushing a three, uh, there was a bunch of situations late in that game to me where uh, Golden State wasn't sticking to its its principles in terms of moving the basketball, passing up good shots for great shots, uh, trusting the pass and all the things that Kerr's always lecturing about. It was yeah. like they they felt like they were the more talented and better team uh, and they were trying to take shortcuts. And to me, I guess, you know, when we look big picture in terms of the last factor fiction, uh, to me, it's fiction completely that they're going to be scared of Boston at all in, well. in the postseason. I mean, assuming Boston even makes it to the finals, I mean, to me, uh, you know, barely gutting out this ugly win in November. Uh, you know, if you're Golden State, you're looking at this as a game you gave away, not a game that Boston took from you. Yeah, I mean, put nothing past Boston homers, but I don't think many Celtics fans are coming away from that game thinking we can beat the Warriors this year. I think I think even the vast majority of Celtics fans are just like, wow, that was crazy. This month has been crazy. I love basketball. Uh, but... I don't think I any. So. Yeah, no, nobody's nobody's coming away thinking that these teams are on equal footing. I don't think you're giving the Celtics enough credit for taking the Warriors out of their rhythm. But I agree All with you. I'm going to say, look, Andrew. I mean, do you really think Kerr is going to have Zaza chasing Al Horford around the perimeter for as many minutes as he did tonight when the games actually matter? <laughs> I mean, there's just no look, way. I and don't some know. These other guys who are out there filling minutes are just not going to be even sniffing the court if a title is on the line. Dude, Kerr is operating on a wavelength that we don't totally understand right now. He's in very much woke territory with Kyrie, and I don't know what his rotations are about right now and what they'll be in the playoffs. But I will say that you're right. The Warriors stopped moving the ball and took like probably 10 or 15 contested threes in the second half, which isn't like that. Most Typically... Their threes are wide open looks, usually in tra- in transition. They weren't getting out in transition as much. The Celtics succeeded at sort of turning the game ugly. And the other thing I want to say is I don't care what you like. Obviously, it wasn't a pretty basketball game, and Kyrie was four fifteen. Steph was awful. Clay was off, but it was fun. The atmosphere in general felt like a a, a playoff game beyond uh Omri Caspi out there in the fourth quarter but it was it was fun to have that early in the season and I like it felt like an event going into it and I sort of assumed it would be over by the end of the first half but the Celtics deserve credit for for making it entertaining for sure and I think the problem is the Warriors made that same assumption they they assumed the game was in the bag and they and they let it go one other fact in case people are thinking I'm being too negative on Boston Jason Tatum, two clutch free throws late. I like that. You know, I didn't think he necessarily had the best game overall. I didn't think he was bad, but I didn't <laughs> I didn't see him a lot early. But, you know, 10-time Tatum, as we called him over the summer league, two really clutch free throws there to ice it at the end. That was nice. <laughs> Is that sarcastic praise? I really can't tell. <laughs> no, that was real praise. I'm sorry. I know I, it's awkward because I'm not usually a guy who's like dishing out compliments, but... Uh, <laughs> No, I, I mean, the game's on the line. This guy's a rookie. I mean, he's playing against Kevin Durant, supposedly one of the guys he looks up to. There's lots of pressure. I mean, the crowd's, you know, very expectant. Yeah. That's a big moment, you know, and he hits two back-to-back to make it a two-possession game, seal that victory. I mean, that's pretty nice. 
I don't know, man. To me, Tatum sort of got exposed tonight. I'm not going to give him too much credit for the free throws at the end, but you're right. Sure, he made them. Uh, And speaking of just hating, the Celtics are not the best team in the East, and I feel like we're going to look back and laugh at this stretch. Um, And they just feel very hawksy right now. So... Granted, they're hoxy with the best coach in basketball and with Kyrie Irving, so there are definitely some things working in their favor. But I refuse to take this team seriously. Who do you think is the best team in the East? Well, that is a there. It it may be sort of a, an empty throne, and we'll we'll revisit it when uh, when Isaiah comes back to play with Cleveland. I am definitely not going to put the Wizards there. But they're in the mix. Um, the one thing I wanted to say, though, or the one wait, question. Wait, wait. Slow down, slow down. I'm not going to let you wiggle out of this because I know this is where the emailers are coming at you hard. I agree. By by June, I don't think Boston's going to be the best team in the East. Yeah, I'm. Nothing has really shaken me from that. Uh, right now, I think I think that it's their throne. I mean, I don't I don't really know what's the no. counter that anybody else has been better than them at well, this look, point of the season. We can all we can all read the standings. They're clearly in first place right now. I'm just saying that I think we're going to get to May and look back at this first month as sort of a, a fluke. Uh, and one of the things that I don't think is sustainable is Al Horford. I don't think that he's going to be once they start playing really good teams. Um, particularly in the playoffs, I don't think that he can hold up and be quite as dominant as he has been. He's looked awesome for them for uh, for the past couple weeks, um, but I don't think that that that's the piece that I think will sort of come back to earth over the next few months. Um, but the flip side of that, uh, I have a question for you. I have who an do answer. You th- who do you think, and I didn't give this to you in advance because I just I wanted to put you on the spot. Who, who do you think will beat the Warriors in a playoff series? Not necessarily this year, not necessarily next year, but the next team to beat the Warriors in a playoff series. Oh, man, that is a tough one. I mean, I think the smart money would just be on the Spurs because they're always going to be really good. Um I can't see the I can't see Cleveland doing it. I think they're going to blow up this year. I mean, you can make solid arguments that it's probably Boston, Philly, or Milwaukee. Whoever gets that like big superstar upgrade, like you know, franchise changing guy in free agency, and and that puts them over the top against the like 2019 Warriors. Yeah, um, I'd say one of those three. I really do think like if I had to put money on it right now, I I would put money on the, uh, the Celtics to make it happen because. It, especially if they can get Anthony Davis without giving up both Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. They just have so many great pieces there, and they're able to sort of turn over the back end of that roster and replace them with talented guys and like like Semi Ojeli. I I've, I've screw up his pronunciation all the time. Ojeli. Um, yeah, is it Ojale? I think Marv Albert was saying Ojeli, but either way, Semi is the, exactly the type of dude that like they find that other teams don't. And if you add Anthony Davis as sort of the crowning piece to bring it all together, I think they they could just be really really dangerous. 
Yeah, Anthony Davis will do that to you. I think we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. I mean, I think we need to drill down on who you think the best team in the East is right now, if it's not Boston, because you've done an amazing job of uh, talking around that for the last five minutes. No, I think that by the end, it's going to be oh, either okay. the Wizards or the Cavs or the Raptors. Uh, well, not Maybe not the Raptors. Wizards, Cavs, or Bucks. Let's say that. Uh, and and the, the Celtics will probably be in the mix, but... I think the, the the biggest takeaway from this first month, though, is just how great their foundation is and how dangerous they will be, number one, when Hayward gets back, and number two, if they're able to pull off the the Anthony Davis trade in the next year and a half. And it's it's dangerous no. to like be openly courting a superstar for that long, and a lot of things can change, and a lot of things can go wrong. But I think that... It's just so clear that Stevens is great. They can get the most out of Kyrie while hiding his weaknesses. And the front office is is awesome at stocking the rest of the roster. I liked you a lot better when you didn't talk and just gush about the Celtics for 15 minutes straight. <laughs> <No>. I do <laughs> think I do think this, though. I mean, if you're putting all the players on both Golden State and Boston into a pool and you're drafting, aren't you taking three Warriors before any of the Celtics? So aren't we at least two years away from really having this conversation. I mean, I'd take Steph, Katie, and Draymond in some order before any individual player on the Celtics. And if you have that type of talent gap at the top, I mean, what are we even talking about? That's a great point. And that's that's fair. Um, but can we move to the other side of the conversation as far as Warriors killers? Because you saw the Sixers as well. And I think that they belong in this conversation. So... Take me through Sixers-Lakers Wednesday night. So Tuesday night in LA, I was invited into to some Oculus virtual reality party where I mm-hmm. basically put on one of those headsets and got to see what the world would be like in like 100 years. Uh, I believe I sent you some video <laughs> of myself as Kyle Korver just draining threes in a three-point contest. So I guess... My point here is that on both Tuesday night and Wednesday night, I really got a taste of the future. Yeah. The Sixers, man. Uh, It was like every dream uh, about Joel Embiid came true simultaneously at once, and it was all at the expense of Julius Randle. I mean, you really had to just (laughs) feel so, so, so bad for Julius Randle. I mean, Joel Embiid, is that's one of the best games I've seen that may be the best game I've ever seen in person uh, from a center not named Tim Duncan. Uh, I, I'm struggling to find another guy who I would even put into that conversation. I mean, it was just absolutely absurd. 19 points in the fourth quarter, career high 46. He was doing it everywhere, three-pointers, uh, you know, turnaround face-up jumper over the top of Randall, who had no chance, dream-shaking, yeah. completely bamboozling Randall. Uh, you know, almost Euro stepping at times past him, just parade to the free throw line because they had to foul over and over and over again. And then the post game was great too because he was basically just like, yeah, you know, Luke Walton was way too late deciding to double team me. And <laughs> by the way, the one time they did send the double on uh, Embiid, he just picked it right apart with a nice pass to a cutting JJ Redick. Uh, I mean, all in all, the takeaway from that game was. Uh, you got to consider these guys uh, a playoff threat this season, uh, obviously with the health uh, asterisk applied, because like Redick was just terrible. Like whenever they took either Simmons or Embiid out of the game, the Sixers got really shaky. 
And yet the combination of Embiid and Simmons was so strong and Embiid's ability to impact the game and really reorient the game completely around him on that low block uh, during crunch time uh, covered up all of their flaws, all of their other mistakes, like didn't even matter because he was able to do that. And I mean, you can definitely say, look, like Randall is not a defensive five. I mean, that it was an unfair battle. And right. most playoff teams are going to have a better matchup for Embiid. But if Embiid is really cooking on that block, how many teams have a great matchup for Embiid? Not very that's many. The and thing. that's why it was so impressive. There were a lot of people sort of snickering about Julius Randle's defense in that spot. And obviously he was hopeless. But I was thinking about it. Like, I don't know who else the Lakers could have thrown at him. Like, Brooke Lopez would have gotten cooked also. Granted, he'd have more length to sort of bother Embiid on the jumpers. But, like, I mean, if it's Wizards Sixers in the playoffs, Marchin Gortat is going to be just as hopeless as Randall was. And, like, I I think you go across the league, there are really only eight to ten teams who have anybody that they can throw at Embiid. And, again, like, with the doubles... He's a great passer, and when he's when he's locked in and actually sort of like paying attention, and because he can get kind of sloppy, but when he's paying attention, he can handle any double team and without a, a problem. And like you said, the Sixers are surrounded or have surrounded him and Simmons with shooters, and that was the craziest part about that Lakers Sixers game is earlier in the day they signed Covington to the deal, which I guess is four for 47. um, If you subtract the salary that they added to his deal this year, which is just an unbelievable steal. And like at this point, we have to start really looking at the Sixers as potential like contenders for the next four or five years, if they can stay healthy, which is a huge if. And honestly, watching Embiid and and seeing the Covington deal, I'm confident in the Sixers. But now that it's starting to get realer and realer, I'm now more worried about Embiid's health because they, like, if if he's healthy, who knows how far they can go this spring. Yeah, what's interesting about Embiid is like I, I went back and looked, and if you're talking about just like true centers who have averaged just even 20 points per game in the postseason, like over the course of more than one series, yeah, like in they the don't last exist 15 anymore. Years, no, I mean, it's Dwight Howard in 2009. You know, peak Dwight Howard, the guy who you pretend never existed and doesn't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> We're there's, gonna get to Dwight. T- we got a good Dwight question tonight. Okay, there's Tim Duncan, and there's mm-hmm. Shaquille O'Neal. That's the list. You know, I mean, like, that's it. And so when you drop Embiid into that playoff environment, you just imagine him like 20 a game in the playoffs for him is is not going to be a sweat. You know, he's not only be that, just fine doing that. Look, Duncan and Shaq were going against defenses that still had centers. A lot of these teams have not planned for Joel Embiid. So if he's there, he's going to be a fucking issue for all of these teams. Like, it's going to be wild to watch and uh and then that's that's even no doubt and visually it's gonna look so different too i mean that was really my point is like when you he you're reorienting the game around him because now the other team has to change their lineup approach they can't go as small as they want you can't try to get by with a small ball five like julius randall that's just never going to work and so the style of uh, play is going to change uh, the you know it's going to get back to more inside out stuff uh, rather than outside in. It will just look a lot different than anything we've seen, say, in the last five postseasons. 
And that's exciting, you know? I mean, we always talk, all oh, these teams are trying to, like, zig when everybody else zags and so forth. Like, the Sixers <laughs> are the the one team that could actually really do it, and there's one reason why, Embiid. Well, and that's before we get to Ben Simmons. And I'm glad you sound like a full-on Sixers believer at this point, uh, which you haven't always been. But that was my takeaway. No, just to you, be clear, though, I it's just because I don't have the heart to, to bring up the injury and health stuff after right. that game. I That's mean, that fair. was the best moment of his career. He called it the best game of his life. He's 100% right. Uh, and I wish I could watch Akeem Olajuwon tapes and suddenly go out and put in 46 like Embiid. I can't for some reason. Uh, apparently, that's what he credited for, like, the secret to his, uh, uh, his ultra-aggressive approach against the Lakers. But... Uh, it's also great to see him play 30 plus minutes in two, you know, two games in a row uh, over the course of three nights. You know, that's not something that we've seen from him either. And so it's again, like the key word here is actualizing. You know, we, we could extrapolate all of his per 36 minute stats last year and <laughs> yeah. be like, oh, He's you know, if he can do now. what he did, you know, for if he puts up, you know, 20 and, and seven in 15 minutes, imagine what he can do in 36. <laughs> well, <laughs> he just did it <laughs> against Julius Randle. Oh man, I, I felt bad for Randall. Like he just kind of snuck out the side door at Staples Center, and I, I would have been running too. What it's been a rough year for Randall, but he'll he'll be happier when he goes to a team that actually wants him uh, next year. the The Sixers are yeah, funny I, I, because like I, you see teams like the Bucks uh, and and even the Knicks to a certain extent, like they all are careful to downplay hype about Giannis or Porzingis I mean people believe in them but they're not like going overboard whereas after the Embiid game there were people talking about it like he was Will Chamberlain and like Ben Simmons was like you guys have league pass of course we're going to the playoffs that's the goal of course yeah like this is just the beginning and they're just so all in on the hype and the they're all in on Embiid and it's kind of nice to there nobody nobody in Philly is playing it safe and I enjoy it no I mean on that line like Brian Colangelo is a generally tan fellow yeah you should have seen how bright his face was after the Embiid game I mean I don't even know what <laughs> what hue you would even call it let's just say he was you know pretty excited uh, yeah. about how that went down and it's, so it's not that crazy to beat the Lakers but the way it's the way they're winning some of these games and I said it after the the first Wizards game where they lost they're just so big. I've never seen a team that was quite this long and and big and sort of physically dominant. And they're going to make all kinds of mistakes, but watching them just kind of tower over people is its own sort of spectacle. Uh, did I ever tell you about this one uh, draft analyst who was a doubter, a Ben Simmons doubter? He just didn't <laughs> see it. <laughs> Honestly, he sounds like an idiot. No, I mean, that was my first time getting to see him in person in the NBA. Uh, he presents a fascinating conundrum. I mean, you're mentioning like how much problems sort of their their length and size cause for people. But like offensively, when he has the ball in his hands, you have to make a choice. Like, do you hug up on him, guard his dribble, try to crowd him and maybe force him into, you know, a bad decision? Do you hang off knowing he's not going to shoot and then just basically let him walk the ball down to the elbow where he's shown the ability to either, you know, drive to the basket, finish uh, with either hand or just collapse your defense and find a shooter uh, on any side of him? I mean, philosophically, like what's your strategy if you're trying to defend Ben Simmons? Do you just guard him tight uh, and worry that he drives by you or do you give him space? I mean, 
he's already forcing teams to ask these questions. And the Lakers did not really have a good answer for him at all because anytime he got down to that elbow or, or got close to the paint, uh, he was causing damage in one way or another. Uh, you know he's not going to shoot, but you almost wonder whether you just have to defend him more honestly on the perimeter, uh, you know, lest you give him too favorable of position. Yeah, I mean, he's another guy where I just don't know what most teams can do with him. Like the Lakers had Kyle Kuzma guarding him for a stretch, which was a really bad strategy. But really, like most of these teams just aren't going to have guys to throw at him. And um, yeah, his his finishing is one of the things that I think even people with the Sixers would say they're surprised by um, his ability to to score around the rim. And he, he's basically like a center who is also the fastest player on the court who can also handle the ball. And it's just, it's like, he's a problem. And he's also a prototype that we really haven't seen before. It's just him and Giannis. Like we we're working yeah. from scratch here. Yeah. And I mean, his passing makes him in some ways almost more difficult than Giannis. I mean, I don't think he's on Giannis's uh, level at all in terms of like rim attacks and, exactly. and really... Uh, you know, pressuring the hoop above the rim. But when he can, you know, throw a, a no look pass behind his ear or, you know, leave, you know, leave a pass off into space where someone runs into it or, or find the cutter at the exact right split second, he can beat you in so many different ways. Uh, yeah, you mentioned him kind of picking on Kuzma, man. He picked on everyone. I mean, this guy is a matchup nightmare. The guy who I really felt sad for, and let's throw him in the Julius Randle category, was poor Alonzo. I mean, early in the game, like he's getting these possessions uh, against Ben Simmons one on one. It's like, oh my God, like please let Lavar go out there and stand <laughs> up for him. Like this is just way too much. You, you can't be asking Lonzo to do this. Yeah, I'm kind of tired of talking about Lonzo. I, I'd I'd rather revisit him around Christmas. Um, it's tough, man. I I do like his game. I'm surprised by how much I like his game. But if he's not going to be able to shoot, it's just going to be uncomfortable for everybody. And yeah. that's that's where we are right now. The one thing I'd say about him is being in the arena, clearly the confidence thing has escaped him. You know, it was not there. I mean, everybody remembers that sequence where he badly missed a three-pointer. He kind of got the ball right back, and then he's, he steps into another wide-open three-pointer and just completely misses that one. You know, at that moment, like the Staples Center crowd was sort of like the parents at the, uh, you know, the music recital Dude, when, their kid, yes. when their kid really can't play the violin, you know? And let me and tell like, you something. The only other time I've experienced that at an NBA game um, is DeAndre Jordan free throws. And it's a really bad sign that Lonzo is in DeAndre Jordan free throw territory. But that's where we are. Because I was, I was at the Wizards game, and these are opposing fans who were, who were booing Lonzo for half the night. And by the end of the night, man, like everybody was just rooting for him to make one in the, one of those threes. And I'm sure it's been like that at most of the Lakers games. So it's just, it's kind of a dark stretch for him. I don't know if it's yeah. going to like, he'll probably pull out of this and we'll look back and think that a lot of this was overblown, but it's rough right now. Yeah. I'd say it was darker uh, in this game than I can remember sure. earlier in the season. <laughs> well, uh, the Lakers I, have I mean, been treating him saying, like, like the Messiah. Like, of course they're extra disappointed now. Yeah, but like going back to the the recital analogy, like you can't boo your kid off the stage if you can't play the violin, right? You just kind of have to like cring, cringe your way through it. And I think that's sort of where the fans were. I mean, they, everybody obviously wants the best for him in the building. I do think, you know, we should maybe give Luke Walton some credit here. I mean, he's sitting him down in the fourth quarter, you know, and it's not like it's punishment, but it's merit-based 
you know, time yeah. uh, late in games. And that is one of those things where I was worried. Like, would there be that LeVar effect where like, oh, we're worried that, uh, you know, his dad's going to accuse us of not showing Lonzo enough respects or we have to play him in the fourth quarter. Like, you don't want to uh, put him out there in situations where you're setting him up to fail. And so I think scaling back his minutes and, and maybe taking some of the pressure off, uh, you know, I think that's a smart decision by the coaching staff. Because, I mean, let's be honest, he's not earning those crunch time minutes right now. They're better... Uh, with somebody else running the offense rather than Lonzo. Okay, so you just brought up Lonzo. We've talked a lot about the Sixers. You've still pretty much dodged the question about the next team to beat the Warriors, so I'm going to make it simple for you. You have to pick the Celtics or the Sixers. Who do you take? I mean, you can't answer that question unless you know Embiid's health. So I don't know why we we spend hours and hours debating these things that could be you know flipped. <laughs> why do we do any of this, Ben? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> okay, let's not have an existential crisis. I'm just saying everybody knows. Like, if you have healthy Embiid, you're taking the Sixers. If you don't have healthy Embiid, you're going to take the Celtics. I mean, it's as simple as that, right? Are you really going to make the case to me that you'd rather have Boston's young core than Phillies uh, if Phillies is healthy? Well. I don't know. If you add Anthony Davis to the equation, it's a pretty close call. I'd probably take Boston in that. <laughs> okay. Well, now we're really getting three steps removed from reality. <laughs> we're just handing them a top 10 player. Fantastic. I Okay. Going back to what I said about Gold State versus uh, Boston in terms of throwing their players into a draft. I think if you throw all of Philly's players and all of Boston's players into a draft, but it's a long-term draft, so you're saying you get the rest of their careers. Uh, to me, I'm taking both Embiid and Simmons before any of Boston's players. Do you disagree? Um, absolutely not. I think, well... Okay, so there's your answer. Yeah, I don't know. I might take... No, no, I'm not... I, I, I think part of this is guilt for hating so much on the Celtics. But uh, yeah, Simmons and Embiid are just on a whole other level right now. And Embiid, if he's healthy, I don't think there's any question. We've talked a lot about Giannis and... To me, it does seem like it's inevitable that Giannis is going to sort of own the NBA in four or five years. But if Embiid's healthy in four years, he will be the best player in the NBA, right? Uh, yeah, I think that's, well, you can make cases either way. But I mean, I think the NBA will look different than it does right now. Yeah. Like the whole style will kind of change if he's able to reach his peak. Like everyone's going to have to kind of adjust around him, sort of how the NBA like adjusted around prime Shaq a little bit. Uh, I think, you know, you hate to throw that kind of a burden on a guy when he's 23, but uh, his ceiling is that high. And let's, I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Is it four years away? I mean, the guy was ridiculous on Wednesday night. I don't want to overreact to one game, but I mean, 47, 15, 7, 7, like, come on. You yeah, know, give this guy his due. How Fair far enough. away is he? I guess is my question. Did you did you see that Kyrie came out and talked about being a vegan this week? Oh, he he's been saying that. I mean, that's been out there. Didn't we already kind of clown him about that? Um, I, I didn't I realize think, it. Uh, well, that's because you don't listen to me when I talk on these podcasts. I've definitely <laughs> brought that up before. There's no question about it. And I think honestly, this is really a moment of truth for you because you're this big new Celtics fan kind of boring oh us all with your huge green <laughs> optimism. If you're really down to ride with the green beer crowd, you will give up meat. You will pass on those uh, Taco Bell chicken chalupas, uh, those Crunchwrap Supremes. You'll stick to you know the veggie only and, and no dairy. Can you do it? No, no way, man. Taco Bell meat is all free range, <laughs> humane processing, very yeah. much woke. Uh, I, I did like, yeah. I loved Kyrie's quote where he said, I'm not eating a whole bunch of animals anymore. 
Once you become awake, you don't see that stuff anymore. Oh, if you're very much woke, there is no such thing as distraction. And I love, I love that quote because I think you've said that exact same thing to me, and minus, minus the woke part of it. But you said, like, I don't put that stuff in my body anymore. I find it disgusting. Yeah, free-range dogs, man. But I think, <laughs> how long have we bet on this? How long do you think you could give up meat for? Um... I don't want to. I don't want to even have that bet. I'm not doing that. Sorry. <laughs> You're like not even one meal. I don't care oh enough God. about the podcast to experiment with veganism. Um, but moving on, we've got some questions here, and we're going to stick with the unicorn topic for a one more question, or two more questions here. First, CFB today says, speaking of the East being surprisingly more interesting than the West, have you guys imagined an all-star game lineup that includes Giannis and Bede and Porzingis all on the court at the same time? Unicorn stampede. Uh, I love the idea of a unicorn stampede. And that does sort of feel like it's, is that's, it sort of feels like that's what's coming in the all-star game this year. I mean, why stop there? Put Simmons and LeBron on the court and you have like my favorite team of all time. <laughs> it's I mean, getting kind of ridiculous. Like, I don't know. And that it, I think we all knew these guys were going to be good. We did not have any idea they were going to be this good this soon. And that is a big reason the East is more fun this year. Um, but continuing on, sticking with the unicorn topic, Mason says, Last week's pod got me fired up. I get why we use the word unicorn, and I have no resentment towards the originator of the comp, but I hate it as a universal term. There are so many better mythical beast comparisons. Boogie the Minotaur, Cat the Chimera, Kawhi the Siren, John Wall the Rasian, Kyrie the Dijon, LeBron is Thor, Giannis is Apollo so on and so forth. I just think NBA writers should expand on the mythical beast motif and stop being lazy with unicorn. What do you guys think? So what do you think, Ben? I mean, I I don't even know what any of those animals were that you just listed. I'm pretty <laughs> sure you probably pronounced like half of them wrong. Never I definitely heard did, unquestionably. I've, I mean, look, it's unusual for me to even adopt something like the unicorn uh, as terminology uh, because, you know, unicorns aren't real, you know, and I am a very reality-based person. Uh, call me woke, whatever, Shout whatever out you want, Kyrie. but I have a hard time. I have a hard time wrapping my mind around any of these sort of, you know, these uh, mythical beasts. I mean, do you know anything about mythical beasts or did we just read this for no reason? No. Well, we read it. We read it for a good reason. I definitely have no mythical beast takes. Um, <laughs> I have poor recall of minotaurs and chimeras and sirens and rasians. Um, but let me say this about the unicorn thing. I understand people who think that it is corny NBA Twitter nonsense and that like the things that annoy them about sort of fanboy Twitter also annoy them about the word unicorn, but I kind of like it. Um, so I, I'd say I probably side more, the, the type of people who hate the, the word unicorn are more my people, but I personally enjoy the word unicorn because first of all, it started, it did not start with an NBA writer. It started with Kevin Durant. And I have the quote here. He's talking about Porzingis. He says he can shoot, he can make the right plays, he can defend, 
He's a seven-footer that can shoot all the way out to the three-point line. That's rare, and he blocks shots. That's like a unicorn in this league. So Kevin Durant gave us the dictionary definition of an NBA unicorn, and I enjoy that a player coined that for us. And the main the main reason I like the term is because we do need a way to describe players that are more than just a center or more like Ben Simmons is more than just a point guard. Ben Simmons himself will tell you that he is literally just a point guard. Uh, but like these dudes are freaks and I, I, it would make me happy if we started like using, using unicorn as an official position. Like you'd, you'd have PG, SG, SF, UNI. That, that's what I want. I want some, I want to get weird. <laughs> well, I, as somebody who I'm sure you can relate to, I mean, you go to synonym.com like every single day, right? When you're trying to look for like different ways to say things. And sure. I mean, some, some of these words, like we use rare or do it all. Like we do, we have pounded those into the ground as sports writers, right? Yeah. Unusual, unprecedented, like unicorn isn't, I mean, it's a more interesting way of saying something over and over again, where we would use less interesting ways to say it anyways. You know what I mean? Like if we didn't have unicorn, if that term didn't exist, we would use something uh, even more banal to describe Porzingis or Embiid, right? Yes. Like, oh, rare. You know, so, <laughs> yeah, Mason, I, I, think, I guess I, the, the, the lesson for Mason here is that sports writers will be crappy at their jobs regardless. So complain at your own risk. Well, or invent your own words, you know? I mean, we could try to do that too, but it's more difficult. I mean, well, sometimes that backfires. <laughs> Lebronzo, we've had a few other ones that didn't really go so well. Yeah, I mean, Mason tried. I'm not going to start calling John Wall the Rasian or Kyrie the Dijon, but uh, but yeah, I, I am Team Unicorn. I don't care who's mad at me or who hates it. Let's stick with it. Let's <laughs> let's continue the movement. Um, uh, Johnny Wall Appleseed. What did I call him? Johnny <laughs> Appleseed Wall? Johnny. Worst nickname ever. See, sometimes these backfire. Mason, you know, you've got a pretty good nickname here with Unicorn. Just don't read too much into the mythical aspect of it. And it'll be okay. Yeah. Johnny Wall Appleseed did not have the same legs as Coffee Shop Kyrie, but you can't win them all. Um, so shoot or shoot. <laughs> Stavros says, is it time to rebrand Giannis's Euro step to either the Greek step or the freak step? And you demanded obviously- that we include this. <laughs> It's obviously the Greek leap, okay? I'm not a big fan of the Greek freak. I think that's a little too demeaning. And, you know, ultimately, like when I was looking at Giannis Inc., I got into an extended conversation with a guy who was wondering, you know, should we ditch Giannis's last name or should we sort of hold hold that dear in, in terms of the marketing efforts? And I guess my argument was, look, Giannis, it's already sort of the household name that people understand. Just go all in on marketing the Giannis part. And if you do really brand you know Giannis the player around just Giannis Giannis you know like the, the air Giannis shoes put Giannis on his jerseys and so forth we can do away with the Greek freak which to me it's just slightly unnecessarily demeaning and like uh, anti-human or yeah. inhuman if you will but we can take Greek freak and switch that to the Greek leap. It perfectly describes what he's doing as he's coming down the court. Uh, <laughs> that's a no brainer. Go ahead and chalk it up. I got one, didn't I? Yeah, I like it. I like it. And the, the Giannis um, last name thing is interesting. Cause I totally understand people who are like, 
who heard us talk about it and say you're you're gentrifying his name and we don't want to do that it's strictly we were talking and we mentioned it when we talked about it offline we we were simply saying that if he wanted to take over the world putting Giannis on the back of his jersey and going strictly by Giannis would help help that but uh Adetokounmpo yeah, we're just trying is to get great him yeah, we're trying to get him to the Oprah Madonna level exactly. of like That's one all name we're doing. fame. That's all we're doing. I'm with you on the Greek freak too, and I wrote about him for the Sports Illustrate for an, an issue of Sports Illustrated a week or two ago, and I had put in as the title the case for Giannis Inc. and it was it was changed somewhere along the way to the case for the Greek freak, and I was pretty upset about it. Next question here. <laughs> Moving on from that, <laughs> Srikar says. I am from India, and crowd support plays a very key role in the closing stages of a cricket match. I was in the TD Bank North Garden during the Hornets game, and the atmosphere was incredible in the fourth quarter. Which arenas have similar electric atmospheres, and which do you consider the best? I noticed Oracle Arena gets pretty loud, too. What do you think? Um... I mean, it's really hard. I don't have the world's greatest hearing, and I pretty much wear noise canceling headphones for a regular part uh, of, you know, probably like 16 out of 24 hours a day. Yeah. So I may, might not be the person to answer to this. I would say Oracle gets pretty wild, but then everyone there will tell you it's not nearly as loud as it used to be. So that's always kind of tricky. Um, I would say San Antonio is the place where I would hate to be a referee because I'd be worried about like, you know, know-it-all basketball fans like violently reacting to one of my missed calls. <laughs> um, I would say Portland, uh, kind of a homer pick, but the Moda, especially during the playoffs, gets pretty wild. I hate even calling it the Moda, so we can just call it the Rose Garden. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it, it kind of depends. It's tricky, too, because some of these places do pump in the noise, you know, and that gets really tricky because you like, is this really the crowd or is this sort of, you know, fabricated just nonsense? Um, but you know, I think the one thing I would say to anyone who's looking for the real atmosphere, go during the playoffs, you know, it's a much different atmosphere. Like it might get wild during the regular season for the fourth quarter, but that's still nothing compared to what it will be like, uh, you know, come May and June. Yeah. Uh, I always forget that Moda center is a thing. (laughs) I can't believe Portland allowed them to do that. The Rose garden was so perfect. Um, I don't have I, I don't have as much experience on the West Coast as you do, and a lot of the a lot of the mo- more legendary ones like Oracle and like the Rose Garden um, are are out in Gulliver territory. I will say, and I, I hate that I I've turned into Mister Celtics on this pod. Oh, here we but, go again. Look. Really, you're gonna say parquet? <laughs> you just can't beat the parquet. This is why we needed the Warriors to win last night, okay, or tonight, whatever. Uh, no, the Garden Man is pretty awesome, and that it's it's a longer conversation, and we don't have to make people more disgusted than they already are with the Celtics. But I feel like that is part of the culture there that that helps guys like Stevens, helps guys like Danny Ainge. It's like the fans are into it, and uh, like the playoff game last year. One of the worst nights of my life, Game Seven with with Kelly Olynyk, but man, it was live in there, and uh, I feel like that is the case more often than not. So 
I feel the TD TD Bank North is definitely up there um, in the top five. The other thing I wanted to say, Madison Square Garden is pretty awesome, and people are always snickering when people talk about it as like the cathedral of basketball and the hype and everything else. More often than not, when there's a big game in Madison Square Garden, it delivers, and it looks like one of the most fun places on earth. So people need to chill out on the on the MSG cynicism. Yeah, I would say that among the, like the really premier teams in the Eastern Conference, Boston has the best crowd by a wide margin. Um, I mean, they're the type, you know, especially during the playoffs, like they've all got custom T-shirts. Sometimes they're profane. I mean, they hate LeBron so much, and it's very palpable. As soon as you step into the arena, you kind of want to shower after the game just because it's like so... <laughs> Uh, it's so yeah. intense in the air. Uh, yeah, I would also say, and I've been hard on the Thunder this year, uh, but I have a lot of respect for their fan base too. Um, they, they get really into it. I don't love the let's all stand up at the beginning of the game until the first basket thing. I think that's a little bit corny. Yeah, this isn't um, college basketball, guys. I, I think there is something to be said about like they really truly be- act as one like the entire crowd, you know, like they all wear the t-shirts. You don't have to like guilt trip them into wearing the t-shirts. They know all the cheers. I mean, they, you know, there's probably like 25,000 cupcake signs when Katie went back there. Um, They're intense Uh, and they're kind of in their own way, but uh, for sure I'd put them on that list. Okay. And by the way, like when we look at some of these teams, you know, who should be contenders like Houston, uh, I mean, to me, like the weakest part of the Rockets is the quality of their fan base. I mean, these guys show up late. They're not super loud. I've been to playoff games there where, where the fans bail in the third quarter. Now, granted, sometimes Steph put 30 on them. So, uh, you know, that's part of it. But it's unfortunate that a team like the Rockets doesn't have that same level of elite crowd support uh, like some of these other best teams in the Western Conference, whether it's San Antonio, Golden State, uh, Oklahoma City. I mean, I it's just frustrating. I think that holds them back a little bit. And also when that happens in Miami or LA, I never make fun of those teams because there's all, all kinds of cool shit to do in Miami and LA. And there's also crazy amounts of traffic, particularly in Los Angeles. So I get it when fans are late to those games, but there's not that much to do in Houston. There is a lot of traffic. So they have that going for them as an alibi but there's really not that much going on. Flip side is I would have trouble getting invested in that team because I hate watching them play basketball. And if I lived through James Harden's game six last year, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I'd have a lot left for uh, for yeah. this year. But I got I got to be honest. The excuses about showing up late to games bother me to no end. If you really care about your team, you will be there. Yeah, in my I mean, case, like yeah. Michigan football, I'll be I'll be there an hour and a half early for a Michigan football game when I go. But I'm saying like you should be there 15 minutes before tip in your seat, reading your program, checking the score sheet, seeing who's starting, <laughs> watching warmups, and you do not leave before the final buzzer. Th- those are my rules. I, th- uh, I think certain I, cities just don't abide by them. Yeah, I have a lower bar because in D.C., Wizards games are not full until like halfway through the third quarter. So I, I've just grown yeah. up with it and don't have a problem with it. Um, well, speak, speaking of teams that have a huge disadvantage in terms of their local fan bases, there's no question the Wizards are on that list. I mean, they're probably worse than Houston. I mean, cheering cheering for fried chicken in the fourth quarter of playoff games, get out of here. That is just 
ridiculous, unforgivable. <sighs> Nicholas says, after watching a bunch of old Eddie Murphy stand-up routines, I started to notice a lot of similarities between Eddie Murphy and Dwight Howard. When they were young, they were all anyone could talk about. They were absolutely dominant in their industry. Eddie Murphy had one of the best stand-up routines at just 22 years old, while Dwight was dominating teams left and right with his size and strength, drawing comparisons to Shaq, who I guess would be Richard Pryor in this analogy. Later on, Dwight joined up with Kobe and Nash in LA, which was supposed to be fantastic, while Eddie Murphy joined the set of Tower Heist, teaming up with a handful of great comedians and actors. Slight difference there. I don't think anybody took Tower Heist seriously. I think that was everyone knew that was going to be a disaster going in. But anyways, Nicholas says both scenarios turned out to be underwhelming to say the least. And now it's gone downhill ever since. Okay, so my reaction to this on the one hand, I absolutely love this email. Uh, And Dwight Howard, I don't want to hate on Dwight's earlier career anymore. But comparing him to peak Eddie Murphy is fucking out of bounds because Eddie Murphy was one of the funniest people of all time and Dwight was good for three years. So chill out on the Eddie Murphy comparisons. The one thing I will say is that Dwight's candy intake is as close as you can get to a cocaine habit without ever actually doing cocaine. So in that way... It was it, the the comparison holds up as far as the as far as Eddie Murphy's sort of undoing. I knew you were going to make that point. It's scary. <laughs> I could I predicted that as soon as I as soon as I saw this question. Um, yeah, look, I think Dwight should be in the Hall of Fame. No question about it. I mean, we had that debate recently. You were definitely wrong, but you're right here. I mean, come on. Eddie Murphy and Dwight Howard, like not even in the yeah. same sentence. Eddie, um, Eddie Murphy is like is in the inner circle of the Hall of Fame as far as comedy, and Dwight, if anything, he he will get in. Let me ask you this: Do you think Lamarcus Aldridge should get into the Hall of Fame? Oh, uh, that's tricky. Probably not. Uh, but real quick, I think if we put all of Eddie Murphy's material into a draft with all of Dwight Howard's seasons. Not only am I taking every single one of his early comedy specials, but I'm taking all of the Beverly Hills Cops movies, all of it over anything that Dwight's done. And also there's no way Dwight, I mean, you can't compare like the Superman cape to like the tight (laughs) red leather that Eddie Murphy was able to pull off. Can I say that one other thing though, it's just a tangent and this is going to be real downer. So like be prepared to save this conversation, but it's so tough to like even praise eddie murphy right now the way that the comedy industry has gone with all these scandals it's like do we want to be out here like i don't know it's just it's just difficult like you feel like you can't you can't trust anyone you know and like louis ck is going down left and right all these different guys um it's just it's just a sign of the times it's pretty bleak there's no question about it and i'm sure there are more scandals coming but i'm not gonna let that ruin my memories of early eddie murphy um I what I would say though is that like Dwight's entire career in comedy syncs up well with all of the worst Eddie Murphy of the, like the the mid 2000s like Dwight's whole career off the court has been like Bowfinger and he, actually I kind of liked Bowfinger it's all been like uh Tower Heist that's so in that way I, another another way that the the comparison isn't totally off 
I have never heard of Tower Heist, and I could not bring myself to watch the Hawks last year. So I think I get where you're going with that. Yeah. Everything too about Eddie Murphy is like, wasn't he kind of a product of his times too? Like, I'm not sure he could have been young Eddie if he came up in this day and age. Like, there I think the is PC people, no the PC question. people would have grabbed him. Exactly, and they would have been right to. I'm not. I don't even. I'm not even mad at that. However, uh, they you're you were right. I forget how many movies he was in. He was in like. 10 or 15 absolute classics uh, in addition to the comedy specials, which you're right, would be completely unacceptable today. But um, let's move on. All hail Axel Foley, for sure. No question. Let's move on to podium here. Brandon says, sticking with comedy, actually. Brandon says, in a situation about a month ago, having lunch with six or eight coworkers, I made a relatively funny hoodie mellow joke that was met with the sound of crickets. I work in an industry full of middle-aged white men and knew they were not the biggest basketball fans, but I figured at least a few of them would get the hoodie mellow joke. It's not like I made a Dion Waiters or JaVale McGee joke, but no, nothing. Not one person had so much as a chuckle. So should I just give up on using basketball humor unless I am around a a select group of basketball fans? Am I just not that funny? Have you guys experienced a situation like this? Any advice on when to and when not to use basketball humor? Um, my advice would be to proceed with caution anytime you're in some of these situations. I very rarely bring up basketball humor or basketball Twitter humor with like normal people because no- normal people, A, don't get it, and B, some of the people who do like get some of these jokes get it in a different way than me. Like sometimes I'll be talking about superstars and kind of making fun of them. And then someone else will join in and I'll be like, well, you just seem like kind of racist and you don't really get it on the same level that I do. And uh, so I sort of steer clear of this most of the time, but I will say also that when you meet someone who does get a hoodie mellow reference, there's an instant bond and you can end up talking to that person for 20 or 30 minutes. Yeah, I would say, first of all, if you have to email to strangers to ask if you're funny or not, that could be a sign you're not funny. So I don't <laughs> I don't want to judge that. But like if you're having those kinds of thoughts in your head, it's okay. Like just admit it to yourself. Like I did that a long time ago. You just kind of have to own your own personality and, and roll with it. Um, so don't let that get you down just on the fact that you're not a funny person. Uh, emailer. Uh, I would say, and this is advice I've used before, but like if people don't know who Jokic is, cut them out of your life. It's not worth it. You know, just save your <laughs> own time. <laughs> and so just, just really use that as your circle. test. <laughs> so you don't even need to like wind up with some big, like elaborate, like hoodie mellow, like crosses the street and goes into a bar and the, ch- you know, you don't have to do any of that. Just ask them if they know who Nikola Jokic is. If they don't, if they don't come back with Balk and Ben Golliver, then they're gone. <laughs> Just get rid of them. They're acquaintances. They're no longer friends. They're not uh, part of your Fab Five or whatever that old cell phone commercial used to be. That's the, my rule. And honestly, it, it, it's worked pretty well for me over the last 10 or 15 years. Brandon, essentially what Ben is recommending is that you charge into work tomorrow morning. Tomorrow is Friday. So charge into work and demand that your boss and any coworkers uh, have a conversation about Nikola Jokic. And if they 
have nothing to offer, you need to fucking quit your job and just walk out and take a stand and find okay, people who okay, value okay. you. Slow down. You're putting words into my mouth. <laughs> they don't need to have Jokic takes. They just need to know who he is. Okay. If they know who he is, that's enough. That will be the threshold. If they have Jokic takes, okay, you've got a new BFF that you didn't know about. That's even better. But I wouldn't expect casual people to get Hoodie Mellow. I think that probably means you spend a little too much time on Twitter. And Twitter can definitely be distorting. Uh, you know, just spend like one week off of Twitter uh, and you will realize how quickly like the little inside jokes on Twitter just do not penetrate <laughs> most of society. <laughs> I didn't even really understand what Hoodie Mellow was because I was on vacation and I came back to all these Hoodie Mellow jokes. But um, I think I got it now <laughs> after Mellow's worn a hooded sweatshirt for four months straight. But um, but yeah, Uh also, if your coworkers come back and say that Jokic is Balkan Ben Goliver and they're open floor listeners, that means sign a lifetime contract. Um, next question, though, from Srikar. He says, I've been in the United States for three years, and while this is not Ben's magnet collection, I am on my way. And he included a picture. And he says, I noticed that we have a few common magnets. New York and D.C. have the best magnets, according to me. Which one are your favorites, Ben? Well, when I got this email, I, I saw the attachment first and they were magnets <laughs> and my eyes lit up and I opened it up and I go, oh my God, he's got the woodcut main silhouette like I do. And I didn't even realize that in the email that he had said, I noticed we have a few common magnets. So I was already pounding out my reply to Streetcar to be like, dude, I have that main magnet. This is awesome. Uh, until I realized that that was sort of the purpose of his email is he wanted to bond over the magnets. Right. Um, per- personally, Personally, I would not necessarily throw New York into the best magnets category. That's little a good cliche. Point. Yeah, they're all very cliche. touristy and crappy. I would say New Orleans, although very touristy, also has just some wild magnets. But I also really prefer just the off the beaten path ones where you're getting like dangling antelopes and like just, you know, some random small town in the middle of nowhere. Another good one was in Idaho because everything is potato related. So you can get Darth Tater if you're a Star Wars <laughs> fan. Uh, I mean, you can get real deep into the uh, the potato uh, word plays and puns. Um, so I would just I guess my general encouragement uh Shrikar would be spread your wings, you know, really go to some wacky places and go on a hunt. You know, it's not just about the destination. It's the journey. Try to, you know, seek out these uh, gas stations and local tourist shops, sometimes even the collectible aisle in a local Walmart. That can be a very profitable place to find magnets. And I know you brought this up, Andrew, because I posted the magnets on Instagram today. Well, I wanted to thank Srikar for reminding me to continue harassing you about the magnets because I had sort of forgotten about that. And then Srikar's email came in uh, four or five days ago and it reminded me to, to sort of give you more shit and push you to finally bring the magnets to the masses and you did. And I'll post Shrikar's, uh magnets tomorrow on my Instagram. But talk about it, man. You you made it to the mountaintop. You had more followers than me for literally five minutes. Okay. So this is a really <laughs> pathetic story. Um, I'm, yes. <laughs> guys, you're All... going to know me better than you've ever wanted to know me over the next couple of minutes. Let me, let me warn everyone. Let me warn everyone. 
all normal listeners hit stop right now and we'll we'll be back on Tuesday and Ben can talk now Ben can talk about his Instagram journey in in peace here. Oh, okay, so on Tuesday's episode, I put the call out for my follower boost, right? Because I was within like 10 or 15 of you, and I knew that, you know, the open floor globe always comes through for me. Every time I mention my Instagram, <laughs> I add like 20, right? So this was going to be my final push. And remember, I've been chasing you on Instagram followers for nine months because we got that one troll email who said I shouldn't be verified on Instagram because I only had like 400. They were all my high school friends because I was so late to Instagram. Yeah. So I have been slowly climbing the mountain with these like spectacular national park photos month after month after month i get within 10 followers right mm-hmm. uh open floor globe starts coming through for me you know, tuesday <laughs> wednesday here we go one by one i'm closing the gap and then i'm noticing that yours are kind of going up too and then i realized it was because you put a beautiful picture from greece up and so that somehow like got you all these new followers and i was just like no uh, the the goalposts are moving. So finally I get within like two followers of you, right? And just for the next 24 hours, I was refreshing like every 15, 20 minutes on Instagram, just hoping for those last two to put me over the top, right? <laughs> never, ca- never came. Like it just kept like, I would get one, you would get one. People would follow both of us, right? And so I'm stuck like one follower behind you. Meanwhile, I'm not mentioning this to you at all because it's like so pathetic. Finally, I wake up, Thursday morning, I am one ahead of you. I've been waiting for this moment, literally for nine months, but also specifically for the last three days. Like this is, this so is it, sad. right? This is so sad, so, and you're not joking about any of it. <laughs> no, this is dead serious. So, and I was up to like four a.m. writing last night. So I woke up at like eleven a.m. I was like fist pumping out of bed, like yes, let's do this. <laughs> so then I had to like set up my home studio for uh, photographing all of the magnets. You know, I mean, hundreds of these things, trying to get them all together uh, for the pictures, just just right. You know, because I'm pretty perfectionistic sure. and I share anxiety on Instagram. Not five seconds after I posted the photo <laughs> of my magnets, somebody unfollowed me and then followed you immediately. So we have a devil out there. We have some <laughs> dastardly <laughs> fan who was waiting for this moment, hoping to crush my fears. And then I realized I made another critical error because I tagged you on my magnet photo. Yeah. And then clearly that boosted you up like another 10 followers so for a beautiful like 17 minutes this morning i got to really uh be proud that i had passed you on instagram followers only to watch you retake the lead it's terrible so follow me guys on instagram (laughs) ben.golliver hopefully i can retake the lead and you can look at all my magnets honestly though i think people should follow me and and just track ben's slow descent into madness <laughs> over this issue i also we should stress that all of these numbers are really small in comparison to actual famous people but uh it's great i've enjoyed how upset you've been about this for the last 12 hours um uh, in all seriousness though the comments that have been coming through have been really really gratifying first of all you've you've uh, inspired like 30 people to just type finally because <laughs> you've been waiting for so long for the magnets, but we're getting lots of good inside jokes. So if you want to be on the real inner circle of the Stop. open floor globe, Stop check out the Instagram, Instagram comments. Uh, all right. Fine. Final question. Sean says, Hey guys, I'm sitting here in Delhi, India, listening to your latest pod and preparing to return home to the Bay. You begged us to push you to 500 star for 500 five star reviews at the end. I normally use Stitcher, but I went to iTunes to give you some love. There were 499 total reviews. 
So I'm the 500th, so I guess you're welcome. You guys keep my commute bearable and are there when I'm doing the dishes and other chores, so keep up the good work. First of all, podcasts have made doing the dishes like a thousand times better over the last couple of years. Um, so I'm with you on that, Sean. And Sean, thank you for being the 500th reviewer. I promise at least a week or two without begging for five-star reviews. And uh, shout out to Sean. Shout out to everybody who has come through to say nice things about the podcast. And uh, yeah, that's it. We'll be back next yeah, Tuesday. No, I think we need to make it clear, though. We thank Sean, but his review was not any more important than any of the previous 499. <laughs> Just like the last shot of a basketball game is not any more important than any of the previous shots. They all count. Uh, if you're trying to win, so right. we do appreciate it. We appreciate everyone who's given us the five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Andrew, I think we have a new goal for Christmas because we hit 500. We're going to try to push it to 10,000 by Christmas, okay? <laughs> <Sure>. 10,000 five-star <laughs> reviews. Flood the review section, absolutely. And thank you to our producer, Lou, who is uh, produce- who is publishing this late because of Celtics Warriors. Um, but yeah, we'll be back next week. Take it easy, Ben. Uh, Good luck on your Instagram quest, and thank you for the magnets. Oh, no problem. And hey, nice job with Jeremy Wu on the podcast. I noticed uh, you kind of slid in on some serious Jonathan Isaac love uh, into that episode, but if people haven't checked that out, go listen to Wu break down the draft. Uh, It was nice to hear him keep you honest, and uh, I'll talk to you next week. All right, man. Take it easy. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.